Good morning. I'm not Jeff Lethko. Uh, Jeff is on vacation this week, and uh, he's, he's given me the, the opportunity to stand before you this morning and uh, to open up the Word with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah. We're going to continue in the book of Isaiah, but I want us to, um, to, to look at Ephesians chapter 2 before we get to Isaiah, because I think it's going to be crucial for us to understand and to have a backdrop of the gospel as it relates to Isaiah 58. I think if we run into Isaiah 58, there's going to be maybe some tension with um, the way that we view the, uh, the word from Isaiah. But it's going to be crucial this morning that we understand the gospel, um, because if we confuse the gospel with what we hear from Isaiah or what we presume that we hear in Isaiah, then I think that we Um, we might miss what the Lord would have us to hear this morning and that we might actually slip into a false gospel that would be a works-centered gospel that is no gospel at all. And so this morning my aim is to convince us through the help of the Holy Spirit that our lives are meant for better things. And by better things I do not mean better houses or better cars or better paychecks, but I mean that we were set apart for something grand. You were not merely saved to sit idly by and wait for God to say, well done, thy good and faithful child, that we were actually saved for good works. This is where I want to exalt faith by grace alone. There that we confuse a works-based salvation with our grace-given gift of salvation. But I want us to hold in tension that faith without works is dead. James is going to tell us that in his book, that faith without works is dead. Ephesians 2 is kind of a snapshot, a holistic snapshot of the gospel. And I want us to take a look at it this morning so that we can understand that we were not only saved from something perilous, but we were saved to something glorious. And that will be our our aim this morning as we unpack the word together. Ephesians chapter 2. says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. We were not sick. We weren't a little bit unhealthy. We didn't have a bad cough. We were dead in our trespasses and sins because of our wickedness, because of our unrighteousness, we were dead. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so there's this presence, this dark spirit uh, that, that we all followed on this planet before. If you're a child of God, you came to salvation. And if you haven't experienced salvation this morning, that you are following. And, and what, what Ephesians is going to tell us is that we follow after this because we desire that. We don't desire God. We don't desire to pursue the things of God. We desire nothing but what we want for ourselves. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, not no one gets exempt from this. No one gets to a free pass and, and I, well, I was born in you know, a church kind of environment. My family's a Christian. You were all 
dead in your trespasses and sins. You all once lived in the passions of your flesh. I lived in the passions of my own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Every one of us, without exception, were in that boat. Apart from Jesus, we would have stayed there. Apart from Jesus, you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature, our very nature, our very core, who we are, children of wrath. Whose wrath is it? We were children of God's wrath. We disobeyed no one except God himself. The holy God we rebelled against. Therefore, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, without exemption, without exception, like everyone that has ever walked on this planet, save Jesus Christ, we are children of wrath. Two greatest words in all of the Bible, verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Because of his love, not anything that we have done, not our good actions or works or faith even, his love, his kindness. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. So you and I were dead, and God made us alive. Through Jesus Christ, in that way, in that why we were still sinners. Christ died for you and for me. This is good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive and raised us up with Him, Jesus Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus. That he might be made much of, that he might receive all the glory because of his salvation imparted to us. Not something that we have earned or done, but that he might receive all praise, all glory, all honor for the salvation that is his alone. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the verse that we, we love. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So don't, don't mistake this. Don't miss this. The gift of God is the faith to believe that he would save you and I from our trespasses and sins. That he would, that he would impart to us the salvation that we could not earn. Left alone, we would never find or seek God. Therefore, God came to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And he has offered us salvation. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. This is not a result of works. This is what sets apart Christianity from every other religion that you will ever encounter on this planet. Not by works. There's nothing that you and I did. There was nothing that we contributed to our own salvation except the sin that made it necessary for a Savior to come. Nothing. 
you talk to any Muslim and you ask them, what's your hope of salvation? They have none. Zero. Their only hope is that they've done enough good that God might accept their righteousness. You and I look in the mirror every day and we know the darkest corners of our hearts. Who in this room even would look into your own soul and you would say, I've got enough good in me to get to the holy, unblemished God? No one. Not by works, it is the gift of God. So that no one could boast. No one gets the credit except for Jesus. That's why we make much of Jesus in this room. We we don't make much of a band or a pastor or a staff or a building or anything except Jesus. For we are his workmanship. Creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've not only been saved from something horrendous, the wrath of God, we've been saved by God's grace for God's purpose. We have been saved from God's wrath by God's grace for his glorious purpose in this world. This is the gospel that we cannot earn it, we didn't do anything for it, and that God has given it to us as a free gift of grace. And we carry that banner into a world that has no hope, that has no message, that has no foundation, and we say, Jesus, Jesus is it. This is what we preach and proclaim and exalt and live for and would die for, Jesus. When Emily and I were dating, we, uh, we, we did long-distance dating. Don't recommend that. Um, I was in Nashville. She was in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, one weekend, she came up to see me, and uh, I wanted to take her somewhere nice. And so I, I took her to this restaurant called Swanky's. It was a taco bar. And uh, we, <laughs> it was upscale, all right? It wasn't, wasn't terrible. So you, but you go through, it's kind of like make your own burrito type deal, and then you, you sit down and you get a waitress, so it was kind of swanky. And uh, so we're in there and we're enjoying our meal and we're talking and we get ready to pay the check and our waitress comes and I say, hey, you can just bring our check to us anytime you, you, know, you have a free moment. And she says, oh, oh, someone has paid your bill. Oh, oh really? And I, I'm looking at Emily thinking, did you pay the bill? Because that's embarrassing. And um, I'm thinking that that's not a good start to this. And you, you always want to know, you want to you pay for the meal if you're the guy because that, you, you're on the like, state that this is a date, okay, because I'm paying. And I said, no, I didn't pay for the meal. So I, I began looking around the restaurant thinking, do I know anybody? Is my pastor here? Do, do I know anybody that might actually care to pick up this tab? And I don't know anybody. I said, well, that's, that's awesome. Um, This is the best date I've ever been on so far. And I said, well, can I let us tip you because you've been been great and you've been kind to us. And so let us give you something. And she says, oh, oh no, you don't understand. The man who paid for your meal was very, very generous. And he covered your tip. You owe nothing. You're free to go. Well, this is the best ever. <laughs> we can get ice cream. <laughs> Tell me, baby. You know, like, this is the gospel. 
This is the gospel that, that we, we get to enjoy the fullness of the righteousness of God, and it's paid for. And so many of us in our religiosity keep pulling out credit card after credit card saying, no, there, there must be something I can do. There must be something I can contribute to this. Let me tip on top of the free gift of grace so that I can make sure that I've earned enough. It's paid for. You're free to go. This is the gospel, and this is the backdrop that I want us to read Isaiah 58, because I think if we, if we understand the gospel in its right light, then I think that we're going to understand what Christ is propelling us into the world to do and to accomplish. And so turn with me to Isaiah. Verse 1, cry aloud. Do not hold back. So this is God telling Isaiah, okay, stand before the people and don't hold back, okay? Bring your A game, raise your voice, and, and just proclaim to them, lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people, get this, their transgressions and their iniquity. Do you think this is what Isaiah had in mind when he raised his hand in Isaiah 6 and says, here am I, send me? I mean, is this what he signed up for? to stand before the people and yell, you are sinners. But this is where we are. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Verse 2, this is where it gets strange in this passage. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. That sounds like that's what we're trying to tell you every single week. That's how we're trying to preach to ourselves. Okay, pursue his ways Seek him daily and delight to know his ways. But here's where it turns. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. So what God says to his people is that you seek me, you have this outward expression of, of pursuing me, and you say that you want to know me, but there's no righteousness in you. There's nothing that you're doing that would actually in your heart Verify your external actions. And did not forsake the judgment of their God. There was no fear of God in what they were doing. Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So you see the people are, are asking back to, to God, why have we done this? Why are we fasting? And fasting is basically when they took a period of time and they would not eat for the, for, the, for the purpose of pursuing and hearing from God. And so they're doing this kind of religious act, but they're not, they're not hearing from God. And, and, the, and God says, the reason that you're not hearing from me is because you're not doing this in, in, the, in the way that I want you to do it. Your heart is far from me. You're just going through the motions. You're not actually wanting me or my righteousness or my judgment. What you want is yourself. You want yourself. You want your own passions. You want your own desires. This is Ephesians 2. They're, they're chasing after everything that is of this world, but then they're laying religion on top of it and saying, God, why aren't you blessing this? Why aren't you hearing this? Why aren't you seeing this? Why aren't you acknowledging us? We're doing this stuff for you. Where are you? 
And, and, and here's, here's, here's the equivalent to what's going on in this passage. Guys, if you've ever taken home flowers to your wife and, 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 and say you, you get to the door and you give the flowers to the wife and, and she says, oh, this is, this is unexpected. I mean, you've literally never done this before in your life. Why, why, what's, what's the purpose of flowers? And, and you respond something to the effect of, well, I'm your husband. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's probably not the answer she wants to hear, right? I mean, this doesn't just resonate with her heart. She's saying, okay, that's um, maybe round two. I'll give you another option. Like, why did you bring me flowers? Well, actually, yeah, there was another purpose. I know I'm supposed to be, you know, a good husband, and part of that is just bringing you flowers. But actually, I was really hoping that you would make that lasagna that I really like, so I brought you flowers. This is a self-seeking agenda for the people of God. And so they're bringing this so-called gift of religion or this, this act of worship before the Lord because they want something from God. And it gets worse. They want God to acknowledge them. They want God to say, great job, love what you're doing. Let me just sing your praises. Never mind that I'm creator of everything and I have put life and breath in you. Let me make much of you. Let me pause what I'm doing and make much of you. I mean, you're carrying the flowers to your wife and you're, and you're saying to her, I'd love the lasagna. And, and actually, could you take a picture of the flowers and put it on Facebook, maybe Instagram it and tell your friends how awesome I am? I mean, what wife, if you're still in the room, is saying, that is my man? You know, like, what, it, what? No one. But this is it. We bring the flowers to God and we say, here are your flowers. And they're, they're meaningless. They're worthless. They don't mean anything outside of a heart that loves the Lord. It gets worse. Verse 4. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. So, so you, you're doing this fast and you're saying you're, that you're, you're holy and you're set apart, but you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. So not only is it about you, but it's at the expense of someone else. That your own religious devotion is at the expense of the welfare of someone else. God says, I don't long for that. To the point, behold, verse 4, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fights are breaking out on the day of fasting. And the people are saying, why aren't you pleased with this? They're literally fighting, punching each other in the face and saying, I don't understand what we're doing wrong. And the Lord says, this is not what I desire. This is not the heart that I want from you. Verse 5, this is where the Lord's going to turn the conversation. Is such the fasting that I choose? And this is where we all get nervous, right? Because when we're reading the word of God or we're hearing the word of God and, and God says, okay, this is what I actually want from you. This is what I desire from you. you. You've got a list in your head of things that, okay, as long as it's not this, I'm game. As long as it's not Africa, I'm going with you, Lord. As long as it's not that job, I'm with you, Lord. As long as it's not, okay, that, Right? No, this is, this is what the Lord says. Listen and hear. To loose the bonds 
of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourselves from your own flesh? This should remind us of Jesus' words in Matthew 25. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me food, and when I was naked, you gave me clothing, and when I was in prison, you, you visited me. And then the disciples said, when, when, did we ever, when did we ever do that for you? It says, whatever you've done for the least of me, you've done for me. So God has placed before us such opportunity in our world to engage our world for the sake of his great name because we have been saved by faith through by grace through faith we have been launched into the world to engage the world in such a way that it makes grace visible Jonathan Edwards says it this way, grace made visible is most clearly seen in the generosity of the people of God. And that's not exclusively a financial statement. What Jonathan Edwards is to declare here is that we need to be people that live with open hands. That what we have is not ours alone, but it's the gift of God. Everything that we own, everything that we've been given and entrusted with in this life is open to give away. And that when the people of God begin to live with open hands when the people of God would look into a world that is suffering from hopelessness and you name it, they would say, we have that. Let's give it. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, what's the word? Good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your salvation did not cost you anything, but your salvation cost us our lives. And may we die to ourselves because we have been made alive in Christ and live with open hands in such a way that the world looks and says, that's what it looks like to have grace. That's the visible expression, the external proof that what you're saying and what you're singing on Sunday morning is actually resonating in your heart. Because Monday through Saturday will prove your allegiance to your words that you sang on Sunday. Then your light will will break forth like the dawn. Your light will shine. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The context there is the church. The city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and they put a basket on it. They put it on its stand and it gives light to the whole house. It gives light to the whole world. And I, I want to declare to us and submit to us and challenge us as a people of God that we would be a light, that we would go into a world that is in desperate need of hearing good news. Historically, Christians have been on the front of social change. Anywhere from the transatlantic slave um, practice that took place, William Wilberforce was an, an instrumental um, man in that process. For 45 years, he labored, labored to, to end the transatlantic slave practice. 
And he saw it end before his life came to a conclusion. Infanticide, the practice of, 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 of killing infants in the Roman Empire in the first century. The Christians are the ones that said, we'll take the babies. We will take them. Because they have value. They have worth. Christians were responsible in large part to end the gladiator games. Throughout history, Christians have been the voice of hope in society. Because we are the only ones that have hope. It's probably at this point we say, man, I, I feel guilty. I'm glad I came today. So where does this start? How does it actually work? What does it look like tomorrow for me to engage the world? Let's look at verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we begin to run the race that the Lord has set before us? We rest. This is the great paradox of Christianity. We rest in the goodness of the gospel. We, we delight in the gift that has been given to us by God for his glory we rest. We gather with the community of saints on the Sabbath and we bring worship to his glorious name and we say yes and amen to his purposes and his ways and his word and we seek with all of our might and all of our heart and all of our affections to not depart from what he says and that we would desire to pursue him. And we stop trying to write checks and we stop trying to pay for what's already been given. God's going to say, you, you need to stop all the religious things that you're so-called doing. It's worthless. What I desire is that you would humble yourself and that you would come together and that you would observe the Sabbath and that you would rest with the people of God and that you would say to your neighbor, here in this room this morning that, that Christ is alive and he has redeemed us and he has set us free not to try to earn our salvation but he has set us free for good works. And I have no idea what that looks like for you on an individual level. But I know that the word of God is calling all of us to engage this world with the gospel. Hebrews 13 talks about our great high priest who has made provision for us. Jesus Christ has made a way for salvation through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. He has announced a way to the God that is here. He has made a way to salvation. But it says that he he went outside the camp 
outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He went outside of the safety net that he knew and made provisions and made a way for salvation. He made a way outside of the camp. And then Hebrews 13 is saying, therefore let us go outside the camp also. So yes to this gathering every Sunday morning. Yes, do not forsake this gathering as is a common habit for some people, as Hebrews would declare to us. Don't, don't miss this chance to gather in your small group this week and, and get together and, and huddle together with believers of like-mindedness, but let's go outside the camp and let's engage the world for the sake of the gospel and let's announce the banner that Jesus Christ is alive and that Jesus Christ is forevermore and he is before us and he is behind us and he is what matters and he is the hope of the world and they don't have it and we have it and let me just tell you how good he is. That's what we've been saved to do. You've not been saved to come and fill a seat. You've not been saved to attend a small group primarily. You've been saved for good works. It's the Bible. So we want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. We want you to love your neighbor as yourself. We're not just looking for more workers in this kingdom. We're looking for lovers of the king. And that we would go out and we would say, Jesus matters. And I don't have all the answers, but it's him. You shall take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your gospel is true, it is pure, it is unheard of in our world. That you would save us apart from anything that we have done apart from anything that we could do that you would impart to us salvation freely as a gift so that you might receive the glory that you might receive the honor God so that it might propel us into the world outside of the camp that we would engage the social injustices of the world. That we would know that our faith is made visible when we're not around each other. I pray that you would move us from a sense of, of apathy at worst, religiosity at best, to a life that delights in your ways and that rests in your grace.